The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are the last six verses of Psalm 16, which along with Psalm 17 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, May the 28th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing in the book of Ruth, as well as the epistle to, uh, first epistle to Timothy and the gospel according to Luke. <clears throat> so today we're sort of finishing up the story of uh, Ruth, actually. This will be um, the last day that we're going to be in in that uh, book, and it's finishing that story. And so we've, we've, what we've had so far, remember, is Naomi and her family, led by her husband Elimelech, had gone from Israel. They lived around Bethlehem. They left Israel in time of drought and famine and, and went to the country of the Moabites. And there the, her children, Naomi's children, Malan and Kilian, um, took wives from among the Moabite women. And, and then they both died as well as, as well as Elimelech. And so Naomi decided to go back. And both her uh, daughters-in-law initially were going to go with her, but she was able to dissuade one from following. But the other, Ruth, continued with her. And so what we've got is the return of uh, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to their ancestral lands. And then she is more or less adopted um, by a man named Boaz, who is a landowner in the area and a close relative of Elimelech. And so Ruth has been uh, has basically proposed marriage to him, although that's not quite the way it goes. What she has done is to, to remind him of his obligation towards Naomi and towards Naomi's children. And Ruth, as the surviving widow of those, would be the one who would be the beneficiary of his largesse if he is the one who is indeed the kinsman redeemer who, who purchases the land that's owned by Naomi and uh, Ruth herself, actually, as the heir to the the son uh, whom she had married. And so the <clears throat> the Redeemer would be responsible for purchasing the land, although in Israel the land is never purchased directly. What is purchased is a series of crops leading up to the Jubilee year, because every 50th year the land reverts to the original owner. And so whatever um, Elimelech, Malan, and Killian may have owned would devolve to them again, or to their heirs at the time of the Jubilee year. So what, what you purchase is the, the potential value of the land in the time remaining between whenever you purchase it and the Jubilee year. And so you figure that out based on the crops that would be able to be raised and the money that would be available from that or the, their usage of the crops that, that are derived from the land. So <clears throat> what they've got to do is sort out first that you've got to have some sort of a, like a present value calculation that, that goes forward in time and assumes certain kinds of things and then says, okay, based on the, those presumptions, then the land, the productive capacity or the value of the productive capacity of the land 
over the next whatever period of years that be. It could be one year. It could be 49 years. Um, so what is that value? And then you have to pay that value to whoever it is. So that, that's one way that Israelites could, quote, sell themselves into slavery to other Israelites. And that is if, if they became impoverished and they owned land, then they could sell that productive capacity of the land in, in exchange for being kept there, maintained, and allowed to farm the land through that period of time. And so they would become slaves of one another in that way. But, it, but it's only for a season of time, and it can always be redeemed if circumstances change. So here we've got Boaz, who has agreed to be the redeemer, but he's also acknowledged that there's one that's a closer redeemer who has sort of right of first refusal. So Boaz goes into the gate of the city, which is where things were judged among the people. And so he goes into the gate of the city, sees this redeemer, calls him aside, then calls a group of 10 men, which is the minimum number of Jewish men necessary for such an assembly. So he calls that those ten men aside, and they are all sitting there, and then he makes his case. Naomi's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you won't, tell me that I may know, for there's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so the man said, I'll redeem it. And Boaz says, oh, by the way, there's one other thing that comes along with that. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And there may be a couple of reasons why this man refuses now to redeem it. Now he knows that Ruth is a part of the bargain. Uh, obviously, Boaz is careful here to say Ruth the Moabite in an attempt possibly to say, um, yeah, you might not want to marry her. She's a Moabite woman because the Jews didn't like the Moabites. They thought them to be immoral people. And so he he may have emphasized Ruth the Moabite for that reason, but that's a that's a common thing in the book of Ruth, actually, is that she's described multiple times as Ruth the Moabite. And so it's probably an important thing to include that detail anyway, but who knows? It could have been a way that he had of, of trying to say, oh, look. But the other thing is, is that, that the why he says he would dilute his inheritance is because if he acquires Ruth, his duty to his kinsman, to his kinsman who had been the, the husband of Ruth, would include providing children to perpetuate that man's name, which means that that person, that child, would then have a claim on the inheritance of this man. But the child wouldn't technically be his because he would have a claim to his own ancestral lands. So he would redeem it, but only for a period of time as this child would then, it would revert to that child. And so he didn't want to dilute the inheritance to his own children by providing children for this dead man. So <clears throat> that's what happens. The man then says, I can't do it. I cannot do that. It's going gonna, it's it's gonna to be too costly for my own uh, good. And, and so he... Then Boaz says, well, all right, you heard it. So now he says, you buy it for yourself, Boaz. And so Boaz agrees to do that in the presence of all the people there. He declares this thing to be done. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mal Malan, I have bought to be my wife. 
to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And so the people all affirm what's happened. We're witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is becoming, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah to together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily to Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will be willing to give to this young woman. And so they're praying for the, this, this one to become sort of a matriarch of sorts, this Moabite woman um, to become a matriarch of sorts for the people going forward. And they go back and they mention particularly Rachel and Leah, who were the wives of Jacob, who raised up the 12 tribes. And then they point specifically to another person from the 12 tribes, Tamar. And Tamar was the one who tricked her father, uh, or not her father, her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her and getting her pregnant. It was largely because her husband died, and then the ones who came after him, the, the other sons, wouldn't do the, the duty that was incumbent upon them to redeem this the one who had died. So it, he, they're specifically mentioning her because it's the closest approximation to the situation that you can get. And then, so all this happens, and of course, Ruth gets pregnant, has a child, has a son. So now the, they're not bereft. This child will inherit his father's property as well as his grandfather's property at this point. And so the women all come and say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than even seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi is credited with um, nursing this child and, and raising him. And so it's an exciting thing, and what a wonderful beginning to this. And then we're told at the end, they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. So indeed, the prayer is answered. The prayer is answered in that, that she becomes a matriarch in this line, and, and it becomes ultimately in the kingly line, but then even further in the distance, it becomes the head of the messianic line. And so this Ruth, the Moabite woman, is now redeemed. And she becomes an important part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. So, skipping forward now into the gospel, Jesus is once again among these people on the Sabbath. They're keeping a close eye on him to find out what he's going to do. And so a man comes and he's got an illness and, and Jesus looks at them and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And none of them who are all Pharisees and experts in the law, not a single one of them gives any sort of response to Jesus at all. And so Jesus goes ahead and heals the man, and then he asks him a very simple question, which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So they recognized they didn't have an answer to anything Jesus had to say. They knew that it was obvious that, that he had, was able to not only justify, but to prove that they themselves would do the same thing if it were personal to them. And here it's personal to Jesus because we're created in his image. And so Jesus is expanding again that idea of not just neighbor, but, but everything should be personal, particularly among the Jews. And that's exactly the situation in that story uh, of Ruth, the, the um, 
book of Ruth, it's how important is our responsibility to our fellow. And so it goes back even to Cain and Abel, obviously, when he says, am I my brother's keeper, when the Lord asked him what has happened to Abel. And so it's important for us to realize the relationship that we bear to one another in the body of Christ first, and then working outward from there. And so we, we are, as John tells us in, in his epistles, that, that if we see a brother in need and we fail to provide for him, then, then that's sin. We have an obligation to provide for our brothers. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. He's pointing back to that obligation. And then he tells a parable of those who are invited um, when he noticed they chose the places of honor. And so he tells this story about being invited to a banquet. And don't go in when you go in there and take the chief seat at the banquet at the right hand of the person uh, who is having the banquet he says because you don't know who's invited and it could be that somebody who is more important than you is going to be there and you're going to have to be asked now to give up your seat in honor of that person and then you got to take your seat at the other end of the table because you're going to have to take an empty seat here so he, he tells that and says for he Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's exactly what Boaz had done. Boaz took that second role for himself and then allowed himself to be used to perpetuate the memory of this other man who had come before him, whose, whose husband uh, was Ruth, or whose wife was Ruth. And so there's, a, there's an important principle in mind here. Boaz has, has subjugated his own claims to things by providing a son for the one who had died. And it's the same thing that that we see in probably in the Abraham and Sarah story that he's willing to provide for his own brother's child. And so here, um, Jesus tells a very simple story that all of us can relate to, not even on a spiritual level, but, but at, on a spiritual level, is, is obviously the reason he's telling it. He's not just given some sort of etiquette kind of a guideline here in this and so what he's what he's alluding to is the the same thing within the body of Christ because he tells that that kind of story again and again and he's talking always about serving others and not setting yourself above others and and that's a struggle for many many people but Jesus here tells a specific parable to point towards the the uh, idea of not counting yourself more important than others but counting others more important than yourself in order that in the kingdom you'll be exalted just here as Boaz is exalted in the kingdom by becoming the grandfather of the king who was the, the, the dynasty that would last forever and his on that throne would be descendants of David forever and ever. And Boaz sets the stage for that by his actions here in, in marrying Ruth. Finally, in, in the First Timothy passage, Peter, oh, not Peter, Paul is giving instruction to Timothy about how he needs to lead and how he needs to live as well. And he, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching, preaching and teaching. And he's saying, make sure those people get paid. They should be lifted up and raised up because they're the ones who are giving you the word of God. They're teaching and preaching the word of God so that you might know how it is that God desires you to live in order that you might become uh, more godly people and more blessed people and that you might display the honor of Christ through your name. And so it's important that those people are treated with great honor and not subject to ridicule and, and hatred. 
And he says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Be really careful about um, how you allow people to speak about the leaders in the church and, and give them the benefit of the doubt until there's a preponderance of evidence um, given against them. So don't just listen to one person. That might just be nothing more than gossip. It might be nothing more than envy. And then as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And it's exactly the same teaching that Jesus gave, right? In, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells them that if a brother sins, you're to go confront the brother in that sin. And if, if they won't repent of that, then you take another and you go confront them. And if they won't repent of it before the others, then the whole congregation hears it. And that's exactly what Paul's telling Timothy to do here. And that is, is that for those people who continue in sin, who fail to repent, and who fail to confess, then you go ahead and, and expose that in the presence of all. Just read an article today, in fact, about, I'm here in Chattanooga right now, and there was a, a church uh, that 40 years ago, they found out, um, recently found out, that a couple of youth interns had committed some sexual abuse um, incidents against some kids that they were working with at the time. Like I said, this is 40 years ago. One of those subsequently became a pastor, and ultimately he had to be removed from his pastorate. But in the details of the story tell that, that this guy refused to acknowledge that this was very big deal at all. And he says, you know, my sins were forgiven long ago. Well, yes, they were forgiven long ago, but we can't trust you and allow you to be in a public position. And it's important that we make those kinds of things publicly known so that, um, that we can protect those that are innocent and most vulnerable among us. He goes on to say, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. James is going to say the same thing, and that is don't prefer one person over another. Don't prefer anybody because they're wealthy, and don't, pre don't give anybody prefer preferential treatment simply because they're poor. Don't, don't make a presumption based on circumstances is the best way to say that. And then he says, don't be too quick to lay on hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And then goes on through the whole thing. He's telling people how to live, what leaders' lives are to look like. And then he, he's, he's saying, be careful about things, because the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the <coughs> sins of others appear later. So people keep things hidden, and some things can be kept hidden for a season of time, and then they only come out later. And then he said, so are also good works conspicuous, that even those that are, are not cannot remain hidden. And so we're just to live humble lives. We're to live in such a way that our good works will be ultimately revealed. Do them before the Father. Don't do them in public as Jesus had taught. It, it's, it, how do we live? We live according to the, the dictates of conscience and the dictates of the Holy Spirit, that we have a responsibility one to another. And if we carry out that responsibility one to another in quiet, then we'll get great reward in heaven. It's a simple concept, but too often we seek some sort of um, recognition for the things that we do when actually we should just be seeking to be approved servants of the Lord.